All right, we are back in the book of James today. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles. And also, if you've got a scripture notebook that you've been working with, to pull that out this morning. If you don't have one and would like one, there, are, there continue to be a, a few left at the entrances to the sanctuary. We are in chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse 6 in just a, just a few moments. Today's passage is focused on humility. And I want you to take just a second to think about that word. What's your kind of gut level reaction to the idea of humility? How do you feel about humility? Some of us, I think, might think of humility kind of like we think about eating our vegetables. It's not much fun. It's not what we we find most attractive, but we think it's probably necessary or good for us. Sometimes we might find humility almost regrettable. Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, once told a reporter, quote, humble people, I found, don't get very far. He said, at home, I'm a nice guy, but I wouldn't want the world to know that. We feel like humility puts us uh, in a compromising position. But this, this past week, I was looking back through a book uh, I've read parts of over the years by an Australian named John Dixon. And he's a historian. And the book is entitled Humilitas. The, the whole book is a reflection on humility. And he argues that many of the most inspiring and influential people in history have actually been marked by this virtue. He makes the argument that true greatness and humility are connected. But in his his historical analysis of, of this virtue, he goes back and he sort of plots public opinion about the idea of humility throughout human history. And he, he says that if you were to go back into the ancient world, that there would, would sort of be this long period of time where, generally speaking, humility was either something cultures were disinterested in or, or even disdained. Think of the word humiliation. They perceived humility to be weakness. They perceived humility to be shameful. Humility, if possible, was to be avoided. And Dixon says, at least in in the Western world and in Western history, that sentiment persisted right up until approximately the middle to late part of the first century AD. And he says, At that point in time, there emerged a community of people that began to view humility differently. They actually began to live in a way that they saw humility as a virtue, to be valued, to be pursued. Dixon says this change happened because that community of people began worshiping a crucified human being that they also claimed to be God. 
course, that community was the early Christian church. Dixon writes that for them, the death of Jesus by crucifixion, which the rest of the world saw as utter humiliation, was to them proof that greatness could express itself in humility. That the most debasing and, and humiliating act imaginable for a human being to endure was coupled with the love of God embodied in Jesus. Humility and greatness go together. And so from that point forward, humility in Western history at least begins to take a different shape. Today as we go back into the book of James, we encounter this radical re-evaluation of humility from someone who was Jesus' own brother. And so James would have been witness to the way Jesus lived his life. James would have been witness to the way Jesus died by crucifixion. But James was also an eyewitness to the way God chose to exalt Jesus from that place of humility to a place of resurrection glory. And so that, that life, that lowering, but also that exaltation is a pattern, James says, that we are to follow as well. To become like Jesus, we must also embrace humility. Let me pray for us as we open up to God's word today for us in the book of James. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, it might speak to us, not just at an intellectual level, but at the level of our hearts and desires, what it means to trust in your greatness, to trust in your power to lift up. Lord, as we hear your word, help us not just to think less of ourselves, but to think more fully of you, to allow our perception of your grace, your mercy, your love, Fill up our imaginations. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Last week, or two, two weeks ago, we started back into the book of James, and we started at the, the, the beginning of chapter we looked at verses 1 through 5. And if you can recall back to that message, those verses describe what I would describe as, as the disintegration of our humanity. And particularly the, the disintegration of who we are at the level of our desires. James talks about these desires that are at conflict, at war, at battle within us. And the result of, of all of these different desires within us, ruling over us, is that they divide us internally. We don't, we don't know how to sort of be whole human beings ourselves. 
and they also divide us against one another. They result in, in conflict uh, in our relationships. Moreover, he, he says in verse 4 of chapter 5, these ruling and warring desires have made us enemies of God. They've divided us against him. And they've caused us to set ourselves in opposition to the things of his kingdom. But two weeks ago, we, we concluded with verse 5, which offered a, a word of hope. It said that despite this, this divided nature within us, God still longs jealously for his spirit to be at home in us. God longs for his love to be what rules in our hearts. We didn't, we didn't unpack or, or get into this next section two weeks ago that explains how that transformation happens. How is that possible? So we start into verse 6 this morning. This is James's answer and, and the scripture's answer to how God meets us in that place of opposition. And God's solution to our resistance is grace, James says. Lots and lots of grace. So look at verse 6 with me, and if you have your notebooks, please feel free to copy this verse out. James 4, 6. speaks about God longing for his spirit to dwell in us. And so it says, but he, meaning God, he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, quote, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. But he, meaning God, he gives us more grace that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. We probably, better than, than anything, are, are consumers in our, our current time and place. And as consumers, we are trained to know that when you need lots of something, when you have a, a great need you go into Walmart or the supermarket and you look for a package with the word mega posted on it. Whether that's for breakfast cereal or for your toilet paper, right? we buy things in these massive quantities. In verse 6 here, James is saying that as God surveys the size and the force of our opposition, the way in which our desires resist his work in our hearts. He too recognizes we need a mega-sized solution. And so to overcome our enmity toward God, he supplies us with mega-grace. And if you look at the beginning of verse 6 here, the adjective that comes in front of that word, which in, in English is just translated more, is the Greek adjective megas, from which we get the word mega in, in English. And in, in Greek, the word megas, or the adjective megas, means something that is large in size, or is illustrious, or is numerous. 
And so if you put verses 5 and 6 together, the, the idea is that because God jealously longs for his spirit to, to live in us, for our hearts to be ruled by his peace rather than by all of these, these sort of factitious desires, it says that God in response gives us more, gives us megas grace. As one commentator translates verse 6, he says, you know, the, the word more just does not do the term justice. We should rather think of this as, as God giving us extraordinary grace. Think about what verses 5 and 6 then communicate about who God is. We think about how God perceives us. These verses say that God returns our offensive, our resistant, our divisive behavior with an abundance of grace. If our pride is this big, James says the, the grace of God is enormously, you know, just, just so much bigger than we can fathom. And that, that idea that God's mercy is greater than our opposition is what Jesus describes as the good news. It's what the, the earliest Christians and the writers of the New Testament proclaim as the gospel. Paul will say that, that while we were still sinners, while we were still the enemies of God, Christ chose to die for us. James says that when we're a mess of conflicting desires, God persists. He jealously pursues us with steadfast love. God gives us more grace in response. How do we let that change who we are and the way we live? It's my experience that, that sometimes, even as Christians, or, or maybe specifically Christians, have a hard time letting that grace work its way down into, into our bones, into our instincts. Sometimes I, I've noticed in myself, as a Christian, I, I think, well, that also means that I should somehow be better than my neighbor. That I need to be a, a moral exemplar for others. And, and that inner dynamic then can result in this weird sense of pride being expressed in my person. Right? This anxiety that I, I need to be up here somehow. And the result of that kind of pride is that I become less gracious. I become less gracious toward myself, less, less willing to receive God's grace toward me. And then I also become less gracious to everybody else. Second part of verse 6 here reminds us that God's extraordinary grace doesn't, doesn't call us to some kind of place of moral superiority. That's not where we receive the grace of God. Instead, the grace of God meets us and ministers to us when we're in a place of humility. And so James quotes the book of Proverbs here, verse 34. Uh, sorry, verse three, chapter 3, verse 34 in Proverbs. 
which says, quote, God opposes the proud, but he shows his favor. It's the same Greek word for grace at the beginning of verse 6. God opposes the proud, but shows his favor or shows his grace to the humble. Grace then requires a posture of humility. Grace cannot be applied to us unless we acknowledge that we need it, unless we come from that that place of lowness, of humility, of humbleness. So James goes on in verses 7 through 10 to describe what I would call a, a posture of humility. What does it look like when we begin to choose God's grace and mercy for us? Let me read verses 7, 8, and 9. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. James provides here a series of these short command statements. It's almost all in the imperative. And I think they are commands that that outline for us what it means to to enter into, to assume the spirit and posture of humility. He says, submit, resist, come near, wash, purify, grieve, and change. Let's just be honest. There's not much in this list that's attractive or appealing, at least not to me. Beginning right away in verse 7, with a call for submission. Submission is the choice of our wills to move from a higher place to a lower place. From a place of authority to a place of being a subject to someone else's choice or desire. So in submitting ourselves to God, it's it's to submit ourselves to be a subject under the rule and reign of God and his kingdom. And humility then requires that I trust that God is, is better poised, better suited to meet those deep desires of my heart than I am to meet them myself. The first sort of step into the posture of humility then is a a lowering of myself, a bending of my will downward. James says, at the same time that humility looks like submission, humility also looks like resistance. He says, our humble hearts must flee from and must fight off the work of the devil. So he describes the posture of humility as a battle. There's there's real evil, James says, real and ugly pride. There's real hatred living in our hearts. 
And we must resist it. We must be untangled from it. I don't know about you, though. I, I don't always possess the, the resources or the know-how to, to, to stand in resistance to those things. And so I also need the addition of verse 8 here. As we resist the devil, James counsels us to come near to God, to make God the ally of our hearts. As he goes on, we, we see this idea of God Drawing near to God, but drawing near to God also includes this invitation for God to purify us, to clarify the muddy waters of our thoughts and desires. James describes humility as a cleansing process. So the posture of humility involves submission, it involves resistance, it involves drawing near to God's presence. It involves inviting the, the washing and purification of, of our deepest selves. But then finally, in verse 9, James sketches out what might be a kind of an emotional profile of humility. What we might feel as we enter into that posture. And once again, these aren't pretty or, or pleasant or put-together kinds of emotions. James says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Not everything God desires to do in us feels pleasant or painless. There's a, a kind of bite in the practice of humility. The emotions in verse 9, I think, are connected to, to what we might describe as the feeling of remorse. Right? James isn't, isn't telling us just to beat ourselves up, to, to feel badly about who we are. Rather, he's, he's calling us to, to an appropriate response to, to our sin, to our offense. Christian counselor and psychologist Rod Wilson, who, who's a friend of ours, wrote that the term remorse actually comes from the Latin word remorsum. And it literally means a biting again, or a biting in return, like, like to be bitten. And the idea, I think, that the Latin communicates is that when we have inflicted pain on someone else, or when we have offended someone else, there is an appropriate sense in which remorse brings the, the bite of that wound back to us. Rod Wilson says we, we experience our own ache in response to the harm we've caused others. But when we experience remorse, when we experience grief and mourning, it presents us with the opportunity for confession, for reconciliation, to say we're sorry to those we've offended. The practice of remorse is a way for us to draw near to those we have been separated from. And the people of Israel actually had a long history of expressing their remorse and their grief through, through concrete actions of repentance. 
Right? If you go back into the Old Testament, we know the people of Israel were called to bring sin and guilt offerings to the temple as a way to do this. They had days marked aside for public fasting to enter into to these kinds of lament and confession. They would put on physical garments of sackcloth. They would smear their skin with ash. If you look at the Psalter, it's full of prayers of lament and confession to help Israel enter into this posture before God. But I, I would suggest that most of those practices have been lost to us today. So how do we enter into, how do we practice putting on the posture of humility? Well, let me give you a few ideas, and, and maybe you have your, your own in mind. I think one of, one of the things offered to us and given to us in the life of the church and the history of the church are hymns and worship songs, and particularly the psalms in our scriptures that offer us the language of lament, that offer us the language of confession that James is is describing and proscribing, proscribing in verse 9. We can pray those things. We can sing those things as a way to lead our hearts in, into the shape of humility and confession. And in response, maybe you can also write out your own prayers or, or begin to pray your own prayers of confession. Naming what is proud in your person. Naming where you are conflicted. Naming where your heart is disordered before God. And then being appropriately saddened. Being sorry for that. Expressing our remorse. Sometimes, though, I think it's counterintuitive, but we may actually need to rest in order to have the energy to express remorse and confession to be broken. Right, to acknowledge where we've resisted God, to grieve sin in the, the kind of way James describes here, requires energy, requires attention. And so we, we may actually have to intentionally move out of our, our busy and distracted way of living and set aside time to appropriately feel these things, to grieve these things. Thirdly, choosing the posture of humility and the practice of lament means that we give God permission to push us toward communicating our remorse, saying we're sorry to those we've offended, to those that our pride has wounded. That might include apology to God by way of confession, but it also might include our friends, it might include our family members. It might include people we, we feel are our enemies. We have to, to invite God to lead us into those concrete actions. Humility is, again, a posture that can be unpleasant and difficult for us to put on and to enter into. But James says we choose this posture, we choose these things because they move us into a place where we can experience the mercy and grace of God. I want to conclude this morning by writing out verse 10. 
please feel free to copy this down with me. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Verse 10, then, is both a command followed by a promise. Everything we, we just looked at in verses 7, 8, and 9, all of those, those short command words, submit, resist, purify, grieve, they now get sort of summarized into one overarching command. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. And if you notice, starting back in verse 7 all the way up to the first part of verse 10 here, these are all active verbs. All of those commands imply our choice. They require a change in my intention, in my attitude. James is saying humility is not something done for us, but something we do. Humility is our response, our action. But James wants us also to notice how God responds to that action. The second half of verse 10 says that if we would humble ourselves, God promises to lift us up. As one commentator remarks, when we position ourselves in a, a state of complete dependence, which is the posture of humility, God then has the freedom to elevate us to where he is. And that idea that, that when we humble ourselves, God responds with, with lifting up. It's not exclusive to the book of James. This is actually throughout the canon of scripture. Right? It, it begins in, in, in the Hebrew mindset that, that they began as, as those who were enslaved and God met them in that place of lowness and rescued them and lifted them up because they trusted him. The same words that James writes here appear in Jesus' own teachings and parables. They appear in the letters of Paul. They appear in the letter of 1 Peter, almost verbatim. Jesus in the Gospels tells a parable about going to someone's home for a banquet. And he says, should you, should you look to position yourself at the highest place, the, the seat of honor at the front of the table? You know, wedge your way in there before anybody else can get to it. Jesus says, no, take the least distinguished seat in the room. So that when it's appropriate, the host can approach you and say to you, friend, move with me up to a better place. And then Jesus says, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Imagine being part of a family that lived like this. Imagine being part of a church family that steeped itself in the wisdom of humility. Imagine being part of a community that that had graceful humility as its first instinct. 
had it within its own DNA. Scripture tells us we don't have to merely imagine that possibility. Scriptures say we have a living example. In fact, if we are joined to the person of Christ, we are are joined into this reality. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, Grace-filled humility is the defining characteristic of what it means to belong to God. And Jesus expresses this. Paul says, Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus doesn't talk about this. Jesus lives this. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what does God do? Because Jesus chooses humility, God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave to him the name that is above every name. Paul says, let this mind be alive in you. Let this mind characterize the way we belong to each other. Let this mind settle our disordered chaos and invite the Spirit of God to live with us instead. You just to meditate on, on what it looks like to adopt that posture of utter dependence, but also what it means that we meet with a God who wants to lift us up to the way he lives and operates in grace.